Countrywide on ABC Radio. Support businesses are going to go to the wall just like dairy farmers will. We've seen the whole agricultural community come out. Once people leave communities, they don't. They generally don't return. Countrywide. Don't worry about me. Go and speak to your farmers. We're already losing businesses. Get out there and speak to your farmers with your gumbo. Countrywide. The politics of food and farming on ABC Radio. Welcome to Countrywide. I'm Fiona Broom, coming to you from Gunaikurnai country in Victoria's east. Australia's outback. Most people think it's barren, useless. But the Federal Inland Development Organisation, FIDO, doesn't agree. Much of it has a vast, untapped potential. That's a report on developing the north from 1964. And in 2023, almost 60 years later, politicians are still talking about that untapped potential. That's right. The frontier spirit is back in the top end. But are they refusing to face up to realities? More from Matt Bran on that story ahead. We're in a beautiful Greenwich zone of peri-urban Melbourne. Um, we're located right across the road from beautiful Parks Victoria and the Werribee Zoo. And unfortunately, the biosecurity risk would just be simply too high. Not to mention, we only have six acres. And six acres is great for intensive farming, but you're certainly not going to put too many chickens to feed the community out there. And warnings that new national animal welfare laws could lead to egg shortages and force some farms to shut down. But first, let's talk about dairy. And the company that brings you some of Australia's best-known dairy products has been slapped with a massive fine after falling foul of a new code of conduct. Milk prices are the talk of the town in dairy communities, and it's a complex business. Remember the dollar milk supermarket war that broke out in 2011 and took eight years for the milk price to recover? A few years ago, milk processors were told they needed to be more transparent about what they were paying farmers. The French-owned company Lactalis has been fined almost $950,000 for breaching the mandatory dairy code of conduct. Lactalis, which owns the Paul's, Valia, Icebreak and Lemnos brands, was found guilty of breaching the code in the federal court last year. Matthew Trace is the president of East Oz Milk, which advocates for dairy farmers in New South Wales and Queensland, and he welcomed the penalty. I think it shows that the dairy code of conduct needs to be taken very seriously by milk processors in particular. You know, compliance is extremely important. And if anyone, any processor try to be a bit tricky with how they are complying or simply lacks in their efforts to comply, clearly there will be significant consequences. Now, the points that Lactalis was brought to task over were that it had breached the dairy code by publishing and entering into agreements that allowed it to unilaterally terminate agreements in circumstances that didn't involve a material breach by farmers. So um, in case that Lactalis's opinion that the farmer had engaged in public denigration of processes, key customers or other stakeholders, and that they had also failed to publish their milk supply agreements on the website. How key are these standards for the future of the dairy industry in Australia? Well, I think the first point about the public denigration, obviously that goes to the key concept of the code that everybody should act in good faith. And I believe good faith for common um, thoughts would be reasonable sorts of conditions, not overly onerous. And clearly that's seen to be um, over the top. I think on the second point, it's really about transparency. Like, 
The code is supposed to make sure that farmers have a very clear understanding of their obligations with contracts and their options to be able to change to other milk processes if a better deal is on the table. So anything that makes that more difficult for the farmer, thereby reducing transparency, reduces competition and therefore um, lowers the farm gate milk price or the deal that the farmer can get. How important is Lactalis as a processor to Queensland and northern New South Wales dairy farmers and indeed dairy farmers down south as well? Oh, Lactalis is a significant player um, in, in the Australian dairy industry and of course um, you know, you go back to the parent companies and the origins, and it actually really started as Paul's in southeast Queensland being the stronghold. So I think Lactalis is important to farmers. There's still a lot of supply out there. And, um, yeah, we don't we certainly don't want to lose any processes in the um, northern dairy industry. How is the industry tracking along at the moment? Are you still bleeding farmers? We are losing some farmers. It's hard to say whether it's um, post from the severe flooding from 12 to 18 months ago or lack of profitability or just a combination. But really the, the proof's in the total production and that's still largely been struggling, but there might be some signs of things um, levelling out and potentially correcting. So it's a bit early to tell. I think we'll know more um, over the next six months. And where are milk prices at at the moment? Well, we had um, another milk price increase this year. Um, in Queensland of, um, of for Farmgate, about two to three cents a litre. So, you know, they're still edging up. Some farmers would certainly say uh, not enough to keep up with on-farm costs increases with the huge inflation that's going on, not just for consumers, but for farmers' costs as well. So, yeah, it's still pretty tight out there. And, of course, we've got those external factors, fertiliser and grain costs being influenced by everything that's going on um, in Europe at the moment. Are you happy with the way the Dairy Code of Conduct is tracking and what it's doing for farmers? I think most farmers have been very um, happy with the code in general. It's one of those few times when government's done something or attempted to do something or brought in a law and it's had a clear, visible, positive effect for the farmer. It certainly has levelled up the playing field between farmer and processor. I suppose from East Oz Milk's point of view, the areas that it hasn't addressed, and I will note there's a review due at the moment of the code by the federal government, is the relationship between processors and retailers has um, not really been addressed through the dairy code. There are some aspects with the food and grocery code, but that doesn't seem to be quite doing the job either so there's some areas to address between processors and retailers and of course over time processors have been um, looking at the code and figuring out ways to um, game it so to speak (laughs) or use it best to their advantage while still staying within the rules so yeah there's a few areas there that East Oz Milk would like the um, government to have a look at. That's Matthew Trace the president of East Oz Milk speaking there with Jennifer Nichols. From the paddock to the plate Countrywide on ABC Radio. Heading south, an egg farmer in Victoria says a change in welfare standards means her farming system will be illegal in a decade. And she's warned egg prices could skyrocket if too many farms go out of business. The updated version of the Australian Animal Welfare Standards and Guidelines for Poultry has been endorsed by the federal government, but it says the time frame is up to the states and territories to implement. Danielle Kuchinotta's outer urban egg farm has been in her family for generations, and she says the plan to phase out caged eggs by 2036 means her family has had some emotional discussions about the future. 
I will have to retire. Um, it means our farm will be illegal by 2036, our conventional cages. And it's actually extremely disappointing because our business will be worth nothing. So your family primarily does caged eggs. You, you couldn't pivot to free range? Uh, no, so we're in a beautiful green wedge zone of peri-urban Melbourne. Um, we're located right across the road from beautiful Parks Victoria and the Werribee Zoo. And unfortunately, the biosecurity risk would just be simply too high. Not to mention, we only have six acres. And six acres is great for intensive farming, but you're certainly not going to put too many chickens to feed the community out there. What's your family saying? Um we had to sit around the table. We had to have a real hard and long discussion on the fact that our family plan moving forward has been disintegrated, that we will need to decide again what that looks like and what we need is a way forward. And the truth is, is you know, for my dad, I think it's actually the hardest. My dad will have to close a business that my grandparents started together and and not do it on his own terms. And that's the hardest part. My dad is really struggling with that concept and so are we by all means, but it's even worse because his, his parents put all their blood, sweat and tears. And so did my mum, my dad and my uncle for that matter. We're talking 24 hours, seven days a week still to this day. Not to mention the fact that affordable eggs will be removed from the shelves. On the other side of things, animal welfare advocates would say that caged eggs is perhaps cruel on the animal and that, that free range is the preferred option. What would you say to that? I'd say to you there is a number of pros and cons for all industries. I'd say to you that there are some huge benefits to cage systems, just like there's huge benefits to free range systems. The ultimate thing we as farmers want is that the consumer gets to choose. And I think there's been this notion of the supermarkets are phasing out and and large organisations are phasing out, so why won't you? Well, the truth is I still sell those eggs every single day because there is still a market. People still need them. And I can tell you, on my local supermarket shelves, there's still huge amounts of caged eggs because we're in a low socioeconomic area. So now to rip that choice away from people who are already across cost living crisis not to mention put my family in that situation in 10 years time because our business can't be sold it's worth zero the moment they implement that you're saying that these changes might come into effect in victoria from 2036 but already in some supermarkets you don't see as many caged eggs on the shelves is it something you're already noticing yeah absolutely there's been a push from um, major supermarkets and other retailers but that's a business decision and they have every right to make that um, I wouldn't say to you that, sure, it's it's shifted the market, absolutely, but to say that that is a reason to phase out an entire system, the truth is, is caged eggs aren't being sold in those markets anyway, so it's an easy shift for them. You've already touched on this, but what, what does this mean for the industry as a whole? I mean, you said the prices of eggs will be less affordable. What does this mean for the industry? I think you only need to look at... Um, the countries around the world. So if you take, say, the EU, for example, they phased out conventional cage systems and they said, okay, we want to go to barns or free range. Well, now they truck in or import in their scenario hundreds of thousands, if not millions of eggs in from Eastern Europe. New Zealand does not have enough eggs on the shelves and they're now going to need to import. If you want to save agriculture and you want it to thrive, then sure, focus on animal welfare. But all we're going to do is we're going to push the 
problem and eventually yeah. we're going to have to import the eggs and the rest of the world tells us that and you know where we're going to import our eggs from our neighboring asian countries now don't tell me for a second that our animal welfare standards are worse than our neighboring countries that's egg farmer and victorian farmers federation vice president danielle cucinotta speaking there with eden henninen To the top end now, and developing the north has been a catch cry of governments for decades. But what gains have actually been made? The Developing Northern Australia Conference was on in Darwin this week, and it's heard some harsh truths by those wanting to invest in the top end. Matt Bran reports. Australia's outback. Most people think it's barren, useless. But the Federal Inland Development Organisation, FIDO, doesn't agree. Much of it has a vast, untapped potential. That's a report on developing the North from 1964. And in 2023, almost 60 years later, politicians are still talking about that untapped potential. Now, when it comes to agriculture, the far North does have plenty of great success stories. At Tipperary Station, for example, the property is not only running cattle, but now grows lemons, mangoes, fodder crops, it earns carbon credits, and it's also growing cotton for the Territory's first ever gin that's been built near Catherine. But David Connolly from Tipperary, who was one of the guest speakers at this week's conference, says it hasn't been easy. No, it's not easy. Um, You've got to have a uh, mentality like mine where you stick at it and uh, be a bit pig-headed. And um, you've got to go and talk to government and talk to the bureaucracies of government. You know, the government ministers want development in the north, there's no doubt about that. But what I found is you have to be able to negotiate the people that support those ministers in the bureaucracies. So just because a minister might say, look, we're going to develop the north in this area and, and we'll support you, doesn't mean that, that, that staff in those bureaucracies will. Many do. I'm not trying to generalise. Um, it, many do, but you've, you'll often find people that, that want to block you for one reason or another, and you've got to be able to learn to negotiate that. So in the bit of frustration that I could sense out of your speech today, is there something that you in particular would love to see in the north? Um, I'd, I'd just love to see pastoralists be able to get on and, and uh, do their pastoral activities um, that the legislation provides for pastoral activities. So um, there's a Pastoral Lands Act that provides for certain things and I'd love pastoralists to just be able to get onto that without, without having the interruptions and the blockages that they, that they um, run into. Um, many of the, um, the government officers uh, are also dedicated to that, but there's outside influences that come and uh, attack those pastoralist rights to be able to develop. And it's not only pastoralists, it's, um, you know, we're seeing um, the energy sector and the mineral sector also having those crocodiles nip them on the heels. Um, the mineral sector and the energy sector have got all the rights to develop as well. And, and, you know, God forbid we need them to develop the Northern Territory. We need a mineral sector, we need an energy sector, we need a pastoral sector, we need all these sectors working together. And um, the people on the ground are actually trying to do it. And um, but it, of course it's frustrating when you when you receive blockages that you don't you don't think are um, a due. This developing the North conference, you pointed it out on stage that it's a room mostly filled with public servants. What do you hope a conference like this then actually achieves? Well, I think the public servants might think that they're going to turn up at a conference like this and meet industry. But when you look around the room, there's very few people of industry actually here. 
So what they're going to have to do is get in the car and go and meet those people. Get on the telephone and ring them. Get in the car and go and meet them because it's not going to happen like a conference like this. It's, um, it looked to me like there was a lot of professional conference goers here. What, what they need to ask themselves now, from my point of view, is who did I meet here? Um, what did I achieve? What's the action list? And then in six months' time, what have I completed in that action list? David Connolly from the Tipperary Group in the Northern Territory speaking to Matt Bran. What's on your dinner plate? Countrywide, the politics of food and farming. Renewable energy projects are rolling out across the country and while folks in the cities may be thrilled about the prospect of cleaner energy, there's a cost to farmers in regional Australia. Landholders in southern New South Wales have told a parliamentary committee that's examining the feasibility of putting high-voltage transmission lines underground. They're worried about lost productivity and the risk of bushfires. Emily Doak reports. The inquiry travelled to the snowy valleys where there's widespread concern about the potential impact of overhead transmission lines and 80 metre high towers as part of the HumeLink project, which will connect Snowy 2.0 to the grid. The hearing heard evidence from three experts who've had experience building transmission lines interstate and overseas. They contradicted what Transgrid has said about the potential cost and environmental footprint of putting the lines underground. The evidence caught Greens MLC Kate Fairman by surprise. They say it's outrageously expensive. You're saying that it's getting cheaper and cheaper. They say it will require digging 50 metre wide trenches. You've just uh, contradicted, uh, you've just uh, corrected that today and said uh, several metres wide. They say that it will sterilise the land above it. Uh, You say that it can be used for agricultural uh, purposes. Uh, They say that transmission lines aren't suitable to be built up, uh, to be uh, built in built up areas. Areas and you say that they are in place in other parts of the world and this is standard practice internationally. Why is Transgrid spreading all of this misinformation about underground transmissions? In a community still traumatised after the 2019-2020 bushfires, the impact of overhead lines on firefighting was a common theme. Hi, I'm Jessie Reynolds. I'm currently a volunteer member of the Darlow Bushfire Brigade, which I live and work <coughs> And we were directly impacted by the Dundroad fire where we lost 95% of my in-laws' farm, including the block we live on. We lost hundreds of heads of livestock and countless amounts of trees, shrubs, not to mention wildlife and ecosystems. The impact on agriculture was also highlighted. Barney Holmes, I'm just here representing my community. It's not just destroying uh, the environment, it's destroying lives and livelihoods of our agricultural producers, but also our community members who will have to put up with these overhead, ugly dangerous high-voltage power lines. Um, I'm Renata Lunadello. I'm a farmer from Yass producing sheep for superfine wool. It will be a 360-kilometre monumental road of destruction through valuable environmental habitat and productive farmland throughout regional New South Wales. My name's Peter Barrett. I'm a farmer on Batlow Road. Um, we're facing towers coming through our property and we'll have two towers approximately 300 metres from my back door. I've had um, the local um, estate agent come out and just give me a valuation. The valuation he gave me was X amount. He said if uh, the power lines came through, I said, can you give me a rough idea? He said, cut the valuation in half. He said, you will lose half the price of this property. 
Committee Chair Emily Saval says regional visits like this are invaluable. It's really important just to make you know make sure that we have listened to the community and, and seen firsthand their concerns as far as we possibly can, getting their input, um, making so that we can make the best possible decisions for all the people of New South Wales. The community hopes they've listened. I'm Bill Kingwell. Uh, I'm a fourth generation grazier and I am the chairman of HumeLink Action Group. I would like to uh, commend a petition that we have signed of 3,000 signatures. If this power line is put underground, and that's what we've stated all along from the landholders that, you know, that I represent, you can start tomorrow. But if it's going to be overhead, we're going to fight you to the last man standing. And we've structured our whole thing for that. Bill King will ending that report from Emily Doak. This is Countrywide. I'm Fiona Broom. Let's take a look at climate change now. And most farming achievements like healthy crops and meaty cattle are seen above the ground. But a New South Wales farming family says they're focusing on what's under the ground and it's helping them to reduce emissions. It comes as the beef industry claims it's doing the heavy lifting in Australia's mission to shrink its carbon footprint. Amelia Bernasconi has the story. A family legacy of farming is something Robert McKenzie holds close to his heart. I could nearly cry. Yeah. He tears up thinking about his sons taking over the company one day, generations on from when McKenzie's first began farming in the New South Wales Gloucester and Hunter Valleys back in the late 1800s. They love it, they're proud of it, and it, it is emotional. I don't know why I get so choked up about it. Over the decades, they've invested in more land and their Angus genetics to see their beef reach markets around the world. But the latest achievement is one you can't see. To reach carbon neutrality on the farm is a, is a massive achievement for the industry. It's a massive achievement for us and our family, but also for our customers. That means they've tipped the scales to having more carbon stored under the ground than what's being emitted from the farms. We're carbon neutral from paddock to gate. So our whole operation is carbon neutral, our cattle live in a carbon neutral environment sustainably and we've achieved that naturally. So we haven't had to lock up land, we haven't had to plant thousands of trees, we haven't had to buy carbon credits or buy offsets, we haven't had to do that. Not that there's anything wrong with that, we wanted to trailblaze and we wanted to do it, to do it our way, we wanted to do it to see a massive benefit in our operation and that's what we've achieved. Sheep and cattle are among the biggest contributors to Australian agriculture's emissions through their methane output, but the livestock sector hasn't been shying away from playing its part in meeting the nation's net zero targets. The red meat sector has been working towards a carbon neutral by 2030 goal since 2017, as Meat and Livestock Australia's Managing Director Jason Strong explains. That came out of a CSIRO report at the time, and since then that's really enabled the industry to focus on how do we actually run our industry to be profitable and productive, but at the same time be conscious of how we interact with the environment. And it was the, the single greatest catalyst for how we've been focused in this space. So the ag sector is actually doing the heavy lifting, particularly the livestock sector. So since 2005, which is the, the baseline year, the livestock sector in Australia has reduced our emissions by 59%. So it's less, it's only about 10% of the total emissions now. So when you think about 
our contributors to the greenhouse gas emissions in, uh, emissions inventory, so often the agriculture sector and livestock get targeted, whereas the livestock sector has actually demonstrated how you can actually make progress in how we can constructively take on this challenge of how we be profitable and productive but still have a positive impact on the environment. Robert McKenzie admits that he, like many producers at the time, had plenty of questions about Meat and Livestock Australia's ambitious target. But with the help of agronomist Hayden Hollis, soil was tested and the properties mapped. The soil testing that we do um, is based on the Carbon Farming Initiative and that's following the ERF guidelines where a minimum of 30 centimetres is tested and that's done across all zones, across all paddocks, across all farms um, to highlight the resolution of carbon. So definitely by understanding the soil type variation we're able to apply inputs where they're needed so things like our fertilisers um, and matching that to what nutrients we require uh, matching plant species to those soil types so we can take advantage of those properties of the soil and how moisture is stored. And we realised that we're already on track. We had good carbon levels in our soil and we realised we just needed to do uh, heavier stock rotation, more mulching, aeration at the right time of the year. But how, did we, how do we increase that? And we worked out that we needed multiple grass species working together in harmony all year round that's sequesting carbon. Robert likes to call it the salad bowl. In his pastures on Woco Station, there's a mix of chicory, a few ryegrasses and clovers, all in a base of kaikuyu. There's no question that we've invested uh, you know, a, a lot of money because it's a large-scale operation. But we want to make sure that we do it cost-effectively and it, and it has got some proven gains. We put the exact same size, the exact same bulls over that exact same group of cows uh, last year as we did the year before. We rotated those cows through the exact same paddocks and we've had a 45 kilo weight gain average right across those 120 cows and calves. Hayden Hollis says the biggest wins have been below the pastures. Uh, so we did find a substantial increase across the operation on carbon. Um, we saw a 540 kilo increase of sequestered carbon per hectare, which is huge gains considering the infancy of the project. In total, about 9,500 tonnes of carbon has been sequestered. To put that in perspective, that's more than the weight of a fully loaded coal train. That only comes in at about 8,000 tonnes. But in a high rainfall year, carbon inputs will increase in response to plant growth. In dry seasons, carbon inputs will drop. And Robert McKenzie knows dry times can be just around the corner. Our key is to get that carbon deep into the soil and lock it down deep. We've found for 1% extra carbon gain in the soil, it's holding 160,000 litres more water in that particular hectare. So in the last uh, six months, we've produced uh, 2,100 tonne extra silage and we've bailed that into square bales and we've buried that strategically on properties under the ground to future uh, drought-proof us. The on-farm gains for the Mackenzie family have been clear, but as consumer trends change, the MLA's Jason Strong says the red meat industry needs to stay ahead of the curve. And one of the things we're really good at is demonstrating our credentials and Australian producers have had good credentials, whether it be biosecurity, food safety, traceability, um, you know, quality consistency of our product and now we add sustainability to that as well. It's not a um, silver bullet, it's not the one thing. Consumers are interested in a whole range of things but this issue around 
climate is is the most important thing to consumers and the community in the world. We see it driving elections. Yet most consumers aren't changing their purchase behaviour as a result of that. They see the responsibility sitting with somebody else. There's no consumers picketing meat cases saying, give me carbon neutral beef. But we know at some point that's going to change because it's so important to everybody. The best thing we can be doing is being in front of that and when somebody does actually ask us that question, so it's okay, we've already got it. Meat and Livestock Australia's Managing Director Jason Strong ending that report from Amelia Bernasconi. And you can see how Macca's Pastoral's carbon neutral journey unfolded on Landline on ABC iView. And for more food, science and farming news, head to abc.net.au forward slash rural or check out our Facebook page at ABC Rural. You can also find Country Hour and Rural Reports all on the ABC Listen app. That's Countrywide for this week. I'm Fiona Broom. Thanks for your company. 